Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and this week we have a very special treat for listeners. A conversation with avant-garde filmmaking legends Nathaniel Dorsky and Jerome Heiler and programmer Thomas Beard. Thomas, along with Film at Lincoln Center programmer Dan Sullivan, has curated a series celebrating New York's underground cinema from the fertile years of 1962 to 1964. The program kicks off this Friday at FLC, and to preview it, Clint and I thought, who better to chat with than filmmakers who not only lived through those years but indelibly shaped them? Nathaniel and Jerome regaled us with stories of their partnership in life and filmmaking, anecdotes about moviegoing and movie making in the New York of the '60s, and the culture-shifting exploits of Jonas Mikas, Gregory Markopoulos, Stan Brakhage, Bruce Connor, and many others. They also told us about a fascinating film about medieval stained glass that Jerome is currently working on, and a new Spanish-language book of interviews with Jerome and Nathaniel called Illuminated Hours, which will be available later this year in English. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. We'll start with Thomas, Thomas Beard, programmer of a fantastic new series. Called kind of a long name, New York, nineteen sixty-two to nineteen sixty-four, underground and experimental cinema. It will be showing July twenty-ninth through August fourth at Film at Lincoln Center. And our other two guests, beaming in all the way from San Francisco, frigid San Francisco, Nathaniel Dorsky and Jerome Heiler. Um, Woo! I'm pretending to be an audience. <laughs> yeah. Nathaniel, do you want to briefly uh, introduce yourself? In what way? <laughs> Um, you know, in terms of your, you who are who are you to the to the listeners of like a film comment, a, an informed public. If you had to describe yourself in one sentence, how would sure, you? Sure, sure, that's good. Well, I guess I'd be called uh, an experimental filmmaker. I became interested in that in that school, if you want to call it a school, but that umbrella of filmmaking uh, when I was around eighteen or nineteen. And uh, I was, uh, have been uh, very attached to it ever since, and still find it completely interesting. Basically, have the same equipment as I had when I was nineteen, better versions of it, and uh, it continues to be challenging uh, and uh, a wonderful hobby. <laughs> I think we can. Uh, I- I'll agree that it's more that uh, we're glad that well, it's more than a hobby at least the the final product. Uh, Jerome, I mean hobbies. I you know hobbies can be wonderful. No need yeah, to denigrate I'm, a hobby. I'm pro amateur. I think yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'm Jerome, and um, I've yet at this point in my life uh, found that label uh, that can easily summarize who I am, but. Um, For, uh, for the purposes of our podcast, a filmmaker um, with a, a painter's background. Um, I, my medium is film, but uh, my, uh, the product is more a, a visual product akin to painting. And um, 
yes, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm uneducated and it's uh, strictly uh, uh, fly by the seat of my pants right up to the moment. And you also work with uh, glass, right? Is that correct? Yes, yes. I did. I, I don't right now, but I, I did for a while uh, because I was I'm tired of the whole idea of uh, the fa film fading, the colors fading. And uh, I was admiring how uh, uh, medieval glass uh, maintained its colors for 800 years. And uh, for that reason, I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it was um, at a certain point in your life, you start grasping at permanence and you know where that leads, a failure. Um, so uh, that was my stained glass period, but um, it does um, still uh, affect the way I uh, see things and the way I photograph and my films themselves to a kind of uh, luminous color, etc. Yeah, that interest in light. Think is, uh -huh. yeah. You're you're an artist of the light. How about that broadly? And Jerome is just about finishing a big project on medieval glass in cinema. Oh, oh wow. incredible! Oh, right, this is the 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 film since 1300. Yeah, cinema before 1300. Oh yeah, yeah that's um, great. What an amazing title. <laughs> and uh, you know, we should say, er Ernie Gear was teaching a course at the Art Institute called Cinema Before. 1900. Before 1900. Okay. And so it's a humorous extension of that. Well, I took over one of his classes. He asked me if I would um, substitute for him. And I had nothing to uh, do. I said, well, what, why are, he said, well, why don't you show those slides you've taken? Because I, 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 I went around uh, France and England and so forth and took thousands of slides of medieval glass. So I did that. And um, so then when Steve Anker asked me to put on a presentation at the San Francisco Film Fest, uh, San Francisco Cinematheque, mm -hmm. um, yes, I called it cinema before 1300. And why, why, cin why do you call it cinema? I mean, how, why do you include it as cinema? Well, first of all, it's a light projected medium. Uh, second of all, it's the first mass media uh, in the world, so to speak. Uh, because uh, at the time uh, they built uh, large, what we call cathedrals, but which were dark houses um, for the windows. You went inside the dark house and you looked at the light projected, and there were stories. Not in, not today where there, you know, there were sequential uh, scenes in which narrators told what what the story was. Um, and so um, th uh, this became, first of all, uh, over a hundred cathedrals went up in France and within one, 100 years. And the pilgrim trade was uh, by the thousands, they traveled around and they went to all these cathedrals and saw all this, uh, this new medium of, of glass. It was, you know, a sensation. So, uh, that's why I call it cinema before 1300, amongst other things. That's fascinating. Well, yeah. let's let's move forward in history to the early 60s, to yes. 1962, 1963, and 1964. Or what? I'm sorry, that's the that's the co the connected series at Film Forum, right? Thomas? Yes. Okay. Can, 
maybe we, Thomas, you could start off, start us off by just kind of talking about the origins of this program at Film at Lincoln Center and with its focus on experimental cinema. Sure. So uh, this project is being held in conjunction with two other shows, uh, an exhibition at the Jewish Museum, which looks at visual arts, um, sculpture and uh, painting and so forth uh, in New York City from between 1962 and 1964. And uh, ours, as you mentioned, focuses on experimental film in the city during that period. And then uh, uh, still more, there's a show at Film Forum, which is a series looking at I don't know, but you call the above ground cinema, um, all of the things, uh, um, you know, from Hollywood to art house cinema that were playing in New York at the time. So uh, Dr. Strangelove, uh, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and, uh, and so forth. And so, yeah, that's that's happening uh, at Film Forum uh, right now as we as we speak. We'll uh, actually be uh, for subscribers to the film comment letter, our weekly newsletter. We'll have a, a, a essay on that series at Film Forum this week to kind of pair with this podcast. Oh, great. But yeah, this particular series, so it was, it began with an invitation from the Jewish Museum. And so Dan Sullivan, who co-organized the series with me, uh, we kind of began talking about it and thinking about uh, how we could tie in what was going on with experimental cinema uh, in New York uh, in this period to uh, the Jewish Museum show, because this is a very fertile moment. for experimental cinema generally, and especially in New York City. I mean, you have uh, a really kind of extraordinary number of uh, works being produced in this one place at this one time. So, uh, you know, Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising, uh, Jack Smith's Flaming Creatures, uh, early Warhol films, uh, the first, uh, or or at least one of the first (laughs) films uh, by Nathaniel, uh, and many more. So, uh, even though it's extremely focused, you know, there are a dozen programs uh, showcasing a really wide uh, variety of uh, filmmaking styles. So you have, uh, on the one hand, uh, really adventurous approaches to narrative form, you know, both uh, a kind of realist idiom being advanced by, say, uh, someone like Shirley Clark with her film The Cool World, which is all shot uh, on location uh, uptown. Uh, you also have more uh, kind of ironic and uh, comedic uh, toyings with narrative uh, in the case of, say, uh, the early work of the uh, Kuchar brothers, George and Mike, uh, who would create these really extraordinary dinosaur approximations of Hollywood spectaculars, uh, war pictures, uh, disaster films, um, but, you know, shot on eight millimeter uh, in the Bronx. And... Uh, and also, or, or someone like Adolphus Mekas's, uh, you know, Hallelujah, the Hills. Uh, and and that's, and that's just sort of the, the narrative that you have also, of course, this, this moment, uh, a wholesale reinvention of, uh, you know, films, visual uh, aesthetic conventions, um, uh, the psychodrama, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, uh, yeah, it's, it's just an, ex- it's an extremely exciting window and uh, my hope is that the series brings together both kind of like the hits <laughs> from this period, like uh, Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising, things that are uh, perhaps the, the best known, um, but also featuring uh, works that might be uh, harder to see or, or, or figures that might be less well-remembered like um, Marie Mankin or uh, Storm de Hirsch, uh, you know, 
uh, or Andrew Meyer to, to name just a few. So you mentioning you mentioned some of these like lesser known titles and names. What was the process by which you programmed this? I mean, there's so many. There's it seems that there was so much to choose from. Like, how did you? <laughs> were these personal favorites or like flag? Uh, you know, touchstones for you as a programmer and. Uh, and a writer or yeah well i mean it was i mean there is uh i mean there is a lot to choose from but it also in another way it's a kind of a smaller world because it's already i mean 62 to 64 in new york city experimental cinema is sort of radically delimiting in one sense um and so and, and so yeah there were things that you know um like flaming creatures let's say which was you know which was a huge uh success to scandal at the period um, or, you know, early Warhol films. Uh, but then, yeah, the, the process of researching it was, it's, it's funny to describe because in a way I've been researching it my entire adult life you know, because the, the history of experimental cinema, particularly in America, is uh, been a subject of constant interest uh, to me for going on two decades now. So it wasn't like we were tasked with making this show and then I started researching it. And for and also I should mention that we didn't say this at the start for listeners who may not know Thomas is the founder of Light Industry in New York. So this yeah, you know he's been doing this for a long time. <laughs> yeah, so it, was, so it was actually in that sense it was kind of it was like an easier thing to program because like if you've been because I've been working on it for twenty years <laughs> in a sense. Um, but yeah, I think but 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 even so, I think that it was also. Uh, you know, an occasion to think about things like, say, uh, Rudy Burkhart and uh, Red Grooms's Shoot the Moon, which is a really delightful, like a uh, milliers uh, homage, uh, is something that, you know, is, is not even, is not, for instance, like in the essential cinema. Um, like a lot, a number of these films you can also see at uh, Anthology, uh, which because they're part of their essential cinema, but a number of them are not, like a number of them are much harder to see. Um, uh, like Rigor Markopoulos's Twice a Man, for instance, you know, for which there's no Blu-ray, you know, it's not streaming anywhere. Like you're basically either going to see, uh, you're going to see it on film at a place, you know, like uh, Lincoln Center, uh, or at best maybe like a car garga rip of some a time that it was on Arte 20 years ago and someone like recorded on their on the VHS tape. <laughs> so the, I did wonder if these films are, are are circulating on those sites and yeah, it's I mean some not all of them though. I was actually look I was going to rewatch um, a very early Owen Land film, Fleming Falloon, which is in the first show, just kind of getting ready for my notes, and it's it's not even on Car Garga, so it's, you know it's, yeah, so that so that there are some some true deep cuts underground. Yeah. yeah. So um, you know we have two people here who actually lived and worked through those years, 1962, 63, 64. Uh, Nathaniel and Jerome, I'd love to hear your memories of that particular time. What were you doing then? Where were you and what were you doing in those years? I was 18, living in Queens. And um, I just want to point out, uh, not only just the, never, never mind the screenings, but the environment around the screenings, the culture. Uh, it was inconceivably monolithic compared to what is today, where, whereas everybody has their own music, everybody has their own, listen to their own whatever. Um, in those days, there were three TV stations that had the news. That's where you got the news. Everything 
everybody agreed on everything, you understand? And then in the midst of all this, there was a certain amount of political um, uh, rebellion. And I was a little part of that, the idea of nuclear disarmament. So, and um, Jonas Mikus was part of that too. So then when you went to a screening and you heard, you read the village voice, and oh, it was such an underground newspaper in, the, in those days. And then you've heard that there were these screenings. When you went to the screenings, they had an atmosphere of uh, kind of an underground society, a secret society that was against the monolithic culture. And the audience had a lot of, uh, from the psychiatric community, a lot of people who were politically involved and uh, they were very uh, feisty group of people. Um, if a shot was out of focus, there would be a, practically a near riot at times. Was, you know, you're out of focus, but you know, nobody wanted to be taken for a ride. Everybody was extremely critical. So I'm just saying that the, uh, the, uh, the world and the atmosphere of these screenings was a completely different from of uh, the more staid, accepted uh, feel today. You were you were almost you're almost being a, a, an outlaw going. Uh, do you think that was specific to New York at the time? I mean, there were there were kind of parallel movements happening in other parts of the country. Maybe not as many people involved, but um, do you think that kind of combative attitude was something that was specific to to this particular group of people, or was that something that you also saw in a uh, San Francisco Bay Area. I wasn't at Canyon Cinema at the time, you know, I didn't know exactly, but I, I know that uh, basically it was a small world and it rep represented a small, uh, for instance, uh, Manhattan uh, was more uptown and downtown in those days. So this was downtown cinema, whereas uptown cinema, that was represented by a group called Cinema 16. And uh, they were, um, you know, that was above 59th Street. And uh, that was where their audience came from. And they rejected a lot of, uh, of brackage uh, after anticipation of the night, no brackage, uh, no Murray Mencken, uh, certainly not uh, Jack Smith's Flaming Creatures. They, they, they stopped at the psychodramas and things like that, films that, that can be discussed by intelligent people. You know, that's that's what they were very sort of reasonable, whereas we were a kind of a little more of the bomb throwers. Oh, interesting. So Cinema 16 goers and, you know, the organizers, Amos Vogel, were not where the uh, kind of stayed buttoned down. Well, uh, it's funny uh, because I grew up, I never knew Cinema 16. I never knew Amos Vogel, but I had only heard from Jonas Gregory Markopa, so I considered them, you know, practically evil people up there. <laughs> up, you know, something yeah. happens to people above 59th Street. I don't know what it is, but uh, when I look at pictures of him today, he seems like a perfectly lovely looking person. It's a real street gang mentality. <laughs> but, the territories, uh, territorial. But maybe I, you could say a little more about what you meant, what you mean when you say that you were the bomb throwers, you know, what was it that was so 
that seemed at that time so radical about what you were doing compared to them because okay. you know now looking back now we view all of you together yeah. right okay i would like to correct that we were not the bomb thrones uh as a matter of fact um in those days you had to partake uh, participate in air raid uh, drills you had to when the sirens went off you had to seek shelter and um, at that point, there was going to be a uh, defiant group of people, Jonas Mikas included, that were not going to take shelter. And the police warned everyone, everyone who went to City Hall Park and did not take shelter that day would be arrested. Uh, it turns out so many people showed up at City Hall, they couldn't possibly have arrested everybody. I went to that. So I want to say, no, we weren't the bomb throwers. We were the unbomb throwers. Uh, we were the, we, we, we believed in peace. And that was the issue. And Metaphorically, love. the bomb throwers. And lovers, yes. and love. So um, I want to correct that. I just meant that we were radicals. Uh, and Jerome, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you all uh, met at a screening of In Green uh, which is one of the films that we're showing with, along with Berger Markopoulos' Twice a Man and Andrew Meyer's uh, Shades and Drumbeats. Uh, could you tell us uh, a little bit about that, uh, your, your memories of that evening, uh, you know, where it was, how it came to be, um, what happened after? Yeah, maybe Nathaniel, you want to jump in here. Well, uh, I was saying that the, the first time I ever saw John, I, I had been reading Jonas in the, in the Wednesday, uh, Billy's Voice, uh, the, uh, his uh, film journal. And of course, uh, was going to a lot, of, a lot of the shows and so forth, but I had no idea who Jonas actually was. And it was one time when I was going, this may be too long an answer, but it was one time I was taking the, uh, what was I guess then called the IRT, uh, up to a lab TV which was a, a film lab in, in, in Upper Times Square. And uh, a man got, I, I was sitting in the lap in the subway with uh, eight rolls of film, 60 million rolls of film in my lap. And uh, this man in a olive corduroy jacket, who always wore an olive corduroy jacket, it turns out, uh, was sat down opposite me and he had about 10, 16 million rolls of film. And we both got off at the same station and eventually walked to the same place, the lab TV, which is upstairs from a, a bar in Upper Times Square with um, a, jazz, a live jazz playing behind the bar. And this was upstairs. And I saw that he wrote, wrote on his film box, it's Jonas Mekas. Anyway, eventually I introduced myself and invited him to see this film I had worked on that was a small world and he came over to the apartment I was living in and I showed it to him. Then he scheduled a screening at the um, Washington Square Gallery, which was the showcase for that summer for this Cinematheque. And Jerome was there with, with Gregory Markopoulos and the uh, very uh, talented uh, film critic, uh, Ken Kelman. And uh, I showed uh, Ingrid for the first time uh, jo Jonas wrote about it, just a, a, a few sentences, but I was, you know, I was 20 years old, I was rather thrilled. And um, that's when I met, I think the next day, I was bringing the uh, film to the co-op for distribution. 
and Jerome was there and we met there. Oh, uh, Jerome, were you working at the co-op at the time? No, I was looking for a handout. I needed a car fare to go for a job interview. Uh, Leslie Trumbull, I was gonna hit Leslie Trumbull. <laughs> um, and, uh, and also, and, and speaking of uh, Markopoulos, I remember, I think maybe P. Adam Sidney mentioned to me at, at some point that uh, he'd been very supportive of uh, younger filmmakers. Um, uh, I mean, you all, but also, uh, uh, you know, a number of others, Edward Owens and Tom Shimon's and uh, so forth. So yeah, I, I was wondering what is, um, uh, how did sort of Markopoulos figure in your lives, your work? Um, it, it feels like in, in Green and Twice a Man have, like there's a, a there, there are certain affinities that feel like formal affinities. Well, I know that Gregory respected uh... Probably, I think he respected um, Nathaniel's technical skills too. That that uh, Nathaniel's film stood out. It was uh, had beautiful color. Uh, everything was nicely controlled and so forth. And uh, when we sat down and saw it on this mixed program, I know uh, Gregory was interested, and uh, he leans toward when a picture of Nathaniel's mother comes on. Uh, Gregory, who thinks only in mythical terms, vast mythical terms, you know, leans to me and goes, is that the mother? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was the mother. So that he was satisfied. And to, to my surprise, he, uh, he went right up after the uh, screening to uh, speak to Nathaniel. And what was that conversation, Nathaniel, in your memory? I just remember being very honored. <laughs> I mean, the characters who Jonas was mentioned in his column, you know, it was not like canonizing them, but they became semi-gods. You know, like in, in any kind of small scene where there might be a, a trade magazine and certain people are mentioned often and then you see them. And, and you, you mentioned the filmmaker Cinematheque and the Washington Square uh, Gallery where in green was shown that summer, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious um, where both of you, where else where else both of you were going to see uh, experimental films like in this this kind of three year uh, period? Do you, do you remember particular venues, uh, anything notable about them? Well, I, you know, I, I was so touched, just to answer your question, I was so touched with, um, with the, the, the two dates, the 62 to 64, because in my own Proustian memory, it was, it was an extraordinary period, those three or four years. Of course, one was 20 years old, so one felt a little better than when, when one's 80. It was, it was so moving at that, at that time to be in New York, and as Jerry was pointing out, the world was so straight like young people often ask me, why was Kerouac so powerful? Why was uh, Howell so powerful? And I said, well, you don't know how straight the world was. It was really straight. If some, someone had a mustache, it was an extreme statement. You know, things were very, you know, and to, to come upon the cinema of outdated film, hand processed film, handheld camera, uh, with different social values than the established ha establishment had. It was so th thrilling 
And also film was a mechanical world. There's nothing you couldn't fix with a, without a, with a screw without just using a screwdriver and a needle nose plier. I mean, everything was workable. And and there were old camera stores all around Times Square with used equipment. They were like old hardware stores with dusty machines, different things to buy. You know, where Ron Rice famously bought his outdate footage to shoot uh, Flower Thief. Uh, it was just something like we were healthy weeds. You know, we were, we were weeds around the, the established garden of cinema. And there was a, a and we were well nourished. There was a, can't quite explain how, how thrilling it was to come upon a, 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 a cinema which, was, which one might be capable of doing oneself. Media was owned by the establishment, that monolithic establishment. You went to the movies, you saw the television. Suddenly you were going to uh, theaters, little places uh, in town that also had media. And there was a completely, totally different idea uh, on the wall. Some you were uh, reflective of how you felt. Others were even beyond anything you had considered before. So um, it was uh, that thing of the thrill of seeing the projected media uh, taken over by a completely unpredictable group of people. Mm. I'm I'm sort of curious more broadly. Do you both remember? when you first like fell in love with the moving image? I mean, you know, not not just underground or avant-garde cinema, but do you remember a moment of like really realizing the potential of the moving image? Well, I, I started making films when I was 10, you know, eight millimeter. So I, uh, I don't know, I, that came very early for me. Where did you grow up, Nathaniel? Where was that? Yeah. You know, about a half an hour outside of Manhattan. But what made you pick up, you know, an eight millimeter camera? It was so cool. <laughs> it was so cool to take movies. Are you kidding? <laughs> Still pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> we went to a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, screenings. But one thing, the screens were very different than now. Now you go to an experimental film show in an established institutional building, a pretty mediocre, lukewarm film will come on the screen after the next. The audience applauds politely after each film. It was not like that, right? Every film was ended with a, 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 a competition between uh, boos, hisses, and, and uh, applause. I mean, the audience was very active. Yeah, we're actually supplying uh, era um, era appropriate hecklers at Lincoln Center for uh, um, this next week, which you know we really wanted the, the kind of veracity. So kind of, we'll, yeah, <laughs> there were the plans. And it was exciting. I mean, of course, it was different at that time to go to the Charles Theater, which was on Avenue B, and I don't know what seventh, eighth, ninth, twelfth, twelfth. Further up, yeah. Even to walk that far east in Manhattan at that time was like going to some, you know, outer territories, you know, and uh, like uh, you know, 
uh, Ron Rice was showing on the Queen of Sheba meets the Adam Man. Did you ever, did that come into your conscience, that film? Uh, that, uh, yeah, that we're, sh we're showing, uh, Chumlin is the only right, uh, Ron Rice film we're showing. But uh, no, I remember also because Queen of Sheba, Sheba meets the Adam Man is also, it, it was sort of never finished by him. Well, right. you know, it had a fabulous ending, which both Jerry, Jerry and I were at a lot of film shows before we knew each other. Mm. Very amusing for us. We both saw the film before it was, at least before it was finished, and it had an extraordinary end sequence on the Hudson River with the ice flows and the Queen of Sheba taking the ferry back from Hoboken. It seems to be gone. There's a version of it on YouTube, but it seems to be gone, that whole section. What was the reaction to your film or films at the time, Nathaniel? Like, was there, were you, I can't imagine from what I've seen of your work, a lot of booze were, but although uh, perhaps your early work was more aggressive. I think Ingrid got more applause than booze, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> of course, let the, let the record show. I don't, remember, I don't remember the booze. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was was there kind of like a was there a competitive uh, uh, attitude amongst the filmmakers? Oh, I'm sure. My God. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. They wanted to outdo each other in terms of, you know, out, outrageousness or confront like the, in or in all terms in terms of the technical. There's always some kind of thing like that. I mean, it's it was an un it was an ungoverned society. You know, everybody it was completely loose. Naturally, mm. there would be people who were cooperative. As a matter of fact, Jonas uh, taught. Uh, he he was considered our spiritual center, and as a spiritual leader, he uh, promoted the idea of cooperation between uh, uh, filmmakers and uh, a sort of altruistic attitude of helping one another and not, not being competitive. And uh, I think that without, without that, um, uh, well, I miss that as a sense, there's no center that I know of that has this kind of a spiritual aura that um, people would, um, I, I just remember even being in the Cinematheque and the, excuse me, at the filmmakers cooperative offices. I went in there one time and someone, uh, it was in the morning, somebody yawned. And Jonas said, no, 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 no. From another part of the sec, he heard the yawn. He said, no sleepy bag music here. You know, yawn somewhere else, you know. And uh, that was part of, that was part of who he was. He kept us in a state of consciousness, if we were around him, no yawning, no, you know, that kind of thing. Um, his, his weekly journal was extraordinarily important. It was, it's what gave validity to everything, you know, it was extremely important. Well, and it's also, it's so incredible to read now because it's, it really feels like a, it has such a kind of on the ground feel. You know, you, you, you really get the sense that you are, you get a sense of the social architecture of the films as much, of, as, much as the films themselves, you know? And um, I think there's something, uh, yeah, really quite rare and wonderful about that. Like, I feel like those, those, movie, those, those movie journal columns still, still got it. 
Um, oh, also, Jerome, I was uh, wondering, I, I think the earliest film of yours that I know is from a little later than the moment we're talking about, but were you, were you filming then? Um, like, were, were you, had you started uh, shooting at, at this point? Yes. I roomed with Gregory Markopoulos uh, for uh, most of 64, 1964. And what can I say? He, it was like uh, being a roommate to a king and you were, uh, you were a commoner, you know, <laughs> there was this constant social thing going on. So I was quite surprised at one point where he said, if you'd like to borrow the camera, uh, you know, you can borrow the Wow. So beginning at that point, uh, borrowing what I thought was Gregory's camera, but in fact was actually Jonas's camera. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, getting a job with a photographer later on and then buying my own camera, I was shooting uh, from 64 on all the time. Um, constantly, uh, assembling and disassembling films, um, you know, <laughs> and, view and showing them only to uh, groups of friends. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I'm curious, what did, uh, I mean, Nathaniel, what did you think, what did you want to do differently in this moment when you were making your films? You know, what did you think you were doing that was different from others or you wanted to innovate in a way? I don't, I don't think I thought of myself as an, as an innovator, but just by being who you are is, is, is an innovation. You know, I don't think I was as, as making aesthetic statements. I was, my first few films were almost a summation of all the films I had seen during those two years. You know, including things like Chuck, you know, which uh, I, I found magnificent. You know, and, and, uh, and uh, of course, Maya Deer and so forth, and Markopoulos. So I, I in a sense, I was I I was taking all that momentum and using it toward a, a, a personal expression, but um, for myself, this one thing is that my In Green was a kind of a confessional film about sexuality. I don't know if it was confessional as much as uh, it was psychoanalytic. It was Chamla uh, Masco's full of superimpositions and and impressions and so forth. Um, I, th I think what the, 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 the scene and the films were not middle-class uh, films. And uh, in a way, I, I'm not, in a way I included my middle-class background in my films, which then became very popular, that idea of, of uh, a film about with your parents in it and things like that. Um, I, I don't know if that answers your question. No, that 
That does. Um, and I'm also curious, Jerome, when you saw Nathaniel's films, you know, do you remember what struck you? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're brilliant. That's what <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the powerful use of the soundtrack you know, much as I never had an interest in sound or what have you, but I, I, I appreciated that. I did appreciate his uh, his bringing um, uh, technical um, ability to cinema, or you know, this the cinema. Whereas, whereas it seemed like there were so many films that were um, well sloppy and. This was this was something about precision, and I I I interpreted that as sanity, in a way, and I I I, uh, I think that was a, a big part of it. I, I want to say so something about a film I saw called Happy Birthday Death. I don't know when that was made. Do you know that one? No, what, I, this is. I'm... It's Gregory Corso's film. Oh. Happy birthday of death, I think. No. What? The happy birthday of death? I'm not sure. I thought it was just happy birthday death, but okay. I uh, just looked it up and it says the happy birthday of death. Okay, very good, Nathaniel. And um, what I what I thought was funny about that film is that he narrated the film and had a lot of footage that was not not professional footage. And at a certain point, he would uh, we would just be looking at some kind of gray thing, and then he, as a narrator, would go, "What's that?" <laughs> we'll just have to wait for the next. Thing. I thought that was great, you know, someone who wasn't even ashamed of <laughs> of the messy footage. <laughs> I just wanted to say when you were talking about first memories of film. My sisters, in my town in Jamaica, Queens, we had uh, seven movie theaters. So I had a, a lot of movies as a child, but there's always that first impression, right? My sisters brought me into a theater in the middle of, uh, I mean, in the middle of the morning, and I heard a tremendous amounts of screaming inside. And it was kind of scary. And as I'm approaching it, then they opened the doors into this dark, giant dark room and the screams inside were ear splitting. And I walked down the aisle there. I'm looking up at the screen and there are three guys with weird haircuts, turned out to be the three stooges. One of them's heads was in the middle of a table that where uh, the leaves of the table were open and they're pushing the table leaves together with his head. And it was the most horrific thing I had ever <laughs> in my life. And, you know, sometimes you can fall in love with something and sometimes you can be so frightened by something and it's the same thing. So uh, it was sort of like set me off on a road towards cinema at that point, I think. That's a wonderful answer. <laughs> I love that image. <laughs> the table vice. You know, another thing I don't know, just to mention as a sub-subject, was the uh, the gay reality of, mm -hmm. of the scene? I don't mean to push that kind of that angle, but it was part of it. 
you felt it was a place of tolerance, mm. a place of expression, uh, 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 and that just that you felt that door open, and that there was this world where. Uh, you know, uh, to quote Peter Lamborn Wilson, a, a temporary autonomous zone. There's a zone outside um, societal society's point of view, and uh, that gave uh, you know a lot of people a chance to express themselves who could have never expressed themselves before. Well, and I think it's not it's not even like a, an, an angle to push. I was actually thinking about that earlier uh, today. If you just look at what we're showing, uh, you know, Kenneth Anger, uh, uh, Gregor Markopoulos, uh, Andrew Meyer, Andy Warhol, J yeah, Jack Smith. It's, I mean, it's uh, um, really, uh, it's not just that, or the, the, the Kuchar brothers, um, it's, it's, it's not just that there, you know, um, are gay filmmakers in the series, but they actually make up their, you know, a, a very significant, um, number of, uh, you know, of the artists in the show. And this is, you know, this is before the big touchstones of gay liberation too, mm. you know? I mean, Nathaniel, earlier when you were saying the world was so straight, I thought maybe you meant straight in that way too, you know, heterosexual. <laughs> I knew from the pothead point of view, straight. Well, that's another question. Were drugs? Was this also a world that was accepting of drug use? And what and what drugs were being used? Well, I mean, uh, the whole reality was fess up. What I said, fess up. Oh, well, the 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 Cinematheque, where Jerry became a projectionist, uh -huh. had a meditation room for toking up. Oh, okay. So it was wow. the uh, only theater where you you could go into a lounge. And smoke pot and go back. Thomas, is this part of the uh, yeah, this is gonna, yeah, retrospective have, experience? Have, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we're, we're going to be using the Furman lobby. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It was called the meditation room. But mm. I, I worked out, I, honestly, I never saw anyone meditating in that room. <laughs> meditation <laughs> well, is a broad term. Speech. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, generally you know, speaking, you know, and this is a little hard to describe. You know, people were taking acid for the first time, mm. and so that when I think when you took acid at that time, it was so out of the context of of anything you knew in society. It was quite different. You know, it was a deeply prim primordial, deeply primordial. And uh, also the same with weed. And there was a sense of this underground society. These are sacraments of this underground society, which set them off on a different course than the whole society around them. I think there's a really strong feeling that way. Well, yeah, and this is also a period uh, that is interesting, I think, in part because it's an, it's maybe not the 60s that we're used to, right? Like it's sort of, it's it's a moment before uh, something like uh, psychedelia becomes a, a mass phenomenon, right? So, it, or it's it's like, it's like just, it's like this, this moment just prior to uh, a maybe kind of more, yeah, that, that more kind of familiar image of the 60s in the popular imagination. No, 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 it was fabulous. It had not become mediaized. I don't know what you call it. 
It had not become a thing. It was just genuinely what it was. There were no hippies yet, right? No, no. And 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 the the political the gay thing wasn't political. It it it, it was in its own world. It had it just had its own reality. And again, uh, talking about the spiritual thing, uh, the the drug taking for us, Nathaniel, myself, and a lot of other people. It was for spiritual purposes. We considered it a moral obligation to turn people on to uh, uh, weed or something like that. In other words, to this was this was a matter of morality, not not a matter of uh, just uh, uh, pleasure. And certainly taking LSD, uh, which we went we would go into the forest and spent the day in the forests by ourselves or near one another in the forest and then return to the city after the weekend and what have you. So uh, it was completely different. And then uh, when it was popularized, we were astounded that uh, people were going to discotheques on LSD and you know dancing away the night. It just, we were, we had become the old fuddy-duddies by that time. <laughs> yeah. something, something sacred about it to you. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and uh, in my experience, was the only thing that I had noticed in among the filmmakers. And by the way, I never knew a filmmaker uh, who did not uh, partake in some kind of uh, psychedelica. Hmm. Mm, interesting. You know, I'm also curious, this time is sort of when the civil rights movement is, you know, slowly gathering momentum in the country, was that sort of inflecting this sort of outsider underground community that you were part of? Was that part of the, you know, political, uh, I don't know, rebellion and the political like atmosphere? Like, was there something about whiteness uh, that people were struggling with? Uh, I don't think we were struggling yet with whiteness. We were certainly uh, uh, completely... Uh, what can I say, uh, open aware of all the, uh, uh, you know, racial struggles that were going on at that time, because they were of the most raw uh, and initial uh, types. It was, um, uh, yeah, very, very powerful. But it takes a while for people to uh, bring it home to themselves, like my whiteness kind of thing. It takes a while. It doesn't, that doesn't happen. The same thing with men and women and feminism and so forth and so on. It doesn't, it doesn't immediately go, oh, I get it. No, it, it, all of a sudden you have to live with it and you go, oh, of course, very simple. How could I, you know, we were so, after all, you know, look at those early films. You have to admit there's a certain amount of sexism involved and in, especially in, in a lot of the nudity. And because um, when we were Back, it's, it's as plain as day. All our, all our uh, shortcomings are there too. And may I say something about shortcomings? That was part of the LSD and part of the, of the spirit of the times. You can be imperfect and we will not throw stones at you. That's very important. And that's something that's- Only been... booze, no stones, only booze. <laughs> A technical aspect. But as far as the person's personality and their point of view, 
go ahead, say what you're saying, say who you ever, whoever you are, say it, and we will not condemn you for that. Uh, that has changed. So, so at the, so the, uh, yeah, the criticism would come for the tech from the technical failings for the technical failings of the films or the yes, 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 because as I said, being new, new, you didn't want to be fooled by anyone. I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that this is this program is also happening with this other program at Film Forum that's, as Thomas mentioned, about kind of above ground cinema. And I wanted to ask you if we often hear about the scene as really self-contained uh, avant-garde downtown scene. Did did filmmakers go to see Doctor Strangelove? Was there kind of an, an influence from above? Were there kind of was there an awareness of this above ground culture, or was it as self contained as it's often portrayed as being? Were you going to see big big Hollywood films occasionally, or was this just like you were going to the to the Charles most of the, most nights? No, we went to all kinds of films. You know, it's also the time when when Andrew Saris's auteur theory, his uh, Americanization of the auteur theory, whatever, came into being. Right? So there's a, all that was in the air, you know, of, of respecting uh, in, uh, product from the industry. Very much so. But I, I don't think that the, that the, what do you call them, experimental filmmakers themselves, um, a lot of them were not concerned about what was on the big screen. They were, uh, many of them consider themselves enemies of Hollywood and so forth. And uh, it was us, we're not the first generation, we're a kind of a young generation. And we just among ourselves identified those people who you could go to 42nd Street with and uh, go to the theaters on 42nd Street or whatever. Yeah, so we, we loved to go to, uh, I'm sorry to say, get stoned and go to the go to the the uh, uh, whatever. There was a theater on 42nd Street that only showed westerns and things like Toho, that. The Toho Cinema only showed Japanese films. And uh, Jerry and I used to go out to Brooklyn to Atlantic Avenue to see Egyptian musicals. Mm. And, well, well, and I think that's also a really forgotten and a really incredible and forgotten part of New York uh, film history is that basically at various points, every, you know, from much of the 20th century, every sizable immigrant community in the city had its own movie, you know, movie theater. So you'd have like a place that would show, um, you know, uh, Polish movies or, you know, a place that, you know, or uh, places, yeah. you know, below Canal Street that would, uh, um, show Chinese films. So it's, uh, but that's, or, you know, or Yiddish films, you know, even looking to an earlier era. Um, but I feel like that those theaters and that history is uh, not lost to us now, but it's really not remembered the way that it should be. Let me tell you a story. On, on Times Square, Upper Times Square, there was a building called the Screen Building. It was 1600 Broadway. And it was uh, cutting rooms and so forth. And I was working on a, on a editing a, a, a educational film in one of those cutting rooms and right down the hall was someone Jerome had a great admiration for, it was Joe Sarno. Oh, don't drink. Oh, yeah. What? Moderate admiration? <laughs> Go ahead. Cautious admiration. <laughs> what, what, 
he's, he's a great man. He was a great American independent. Yes, yes. So he was cutting this film down the hall called Red Roses of Passion, sponsored by the mafia, or at least gang, gangster types, believe me. And uh, Jer I think Jerry speak, spoke to him, and we convinced him to go see Twice a Man. And he, he went to see Twice a Man, and then started to recut Red Roses of Passion, putting in single frames of uh, with roses and thorns and so forth. And one day he said, he said, this is a nervous day for me because my producers are coming. You should see these producers, you know, came up to, and he screamed it for them. And we said, how did it go? How did it go? And they said, well, they loved it, but they told me, gotta fix all those mistakes. <laughs> they saw all the single frames as, as mistakes. So, I mean, that's a, that story, I just tell it to give an example of this kind of integration different of the industry, of, the, uh, of us on the borderline of the industry. Just the whole thing, uh, I know, is very fertile. Mm. This, the, you know, you're mentioning producers in the industry. I, you know, I'm wondering how did all these filmmakers make money? I mean, how did the underground like sustain itself? Like, how did people make a living? You know, how did that work? I don't know. I could say, I could say something horrible. I'll say something horrible. You don't have to use it. Unfortunately, a lot of them became teachers. And um, why is that horrible? That's as bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting something much worse. Yeah, me too. I was like, was it mafia? I don't know. Yeah. No, no, no. But what, what I mean is. <laughs> oh God! What is going to the teachers' union is going to come after it, you now. It domesticated the avant-garde. You know, in others, uh, at the time we're talking about these very fertile and really amazing to sixty-two to sixty-four. You didn't go to a college to see an experimental film. In fact, Gregory was uh, what banned from NYU for sc screening a. A film that had a nipple. A nipple. <laughs> no, Jer. Um, that it doesn't ring a bell with me. Sounds accurate. <laughs> Thomas, I feel like would. What? Oh uh, no, I have no, I have no, no, no idea. But also, I just I, when, but th talking about this, it just makes me uh, think of how much easier it must have been to be twenty in New York City than it is now. I mean, just want to. I'm, I'm just talking about money, like rent. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a. Uh, uh, it seems like it was uh, a very different kind of material reality. I remember Jerry's apartment cost 65 a month. Oh, God. And I, had, I had a fancy place that was $85 a month. There's, of course, the salaries are different. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but even taking that into account. I wouldn't call your place fancy compared to mine. <laughs> We'll talk about this. This is that time. competitive attitude that I was now. Now I see about. why you have different houses. <laughs> uh, the economy is—it's funny when when we discuss these things. How it it just keeps growing and growing and growing as far as the influences, and it's it gets cosmic at a certain point. We'll start talking about uh, you know sunspots and things, but uh, the economy was very very important too. It, it allowed us to uh, come and go out of jobs. 
uh, and then when you're through with a job, you got you got uh, unemployment that that gave you time to uh, make a film on unemployment and to work and so forth. And then if if things were were really bad, I went and gave a pint of blood on 42nd Street, and you'd get a, a five bucks. But then I would just go and spend it at the movies. Jerry gave blood and then went to Marnie. Oh my, worth worth it. <laughs> yeah. You literally sold your own blood for to go to the movies. I mean, it just <laughs> no, not to go to the movie, to go to Marnie. That's to go to Marnie, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, not, not just any movie. When the screen turned red, of course, I was experiencing. <laughs> oh. Well, now, I think, for instance, who was was it Louis Bergon? Who was teaching out at, at, at Wagner College in Staten Island? Oh, uh, Willard Moss. Willard Moss, and uh, I remember taking you know with a group of people just taking the Staten Island ferry out one evening, and uh, seeing a film show there. You know, the very and Jerry, in fact, I think saw met Gregory for the first time. We're at, at CCNY at a screening in the classroom. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine uh, in Queens had heard that there was a Greek American filmmaker, and, and we were going on the basis of this that there was a Greek American filmmaker showing something in the afternoon at CCNY. And it turned out to be Gregory showing um, early versions of uh, uh, Twice a Man without sound. Mm. And um, <clears throat> I got to uh, see other. Other of these screenings, I'll tell you, and there was a lot of talk at this time too about people begging him not to put sound on that film. It was so powerful and rich and had the, and the rhythm as a silent experience. And uh, I know Stan Brackage begged him not to uh, put sound on it and so forth, but he did. Um, um, that's a film that really needs restoration today. And it doesn't have, even when you can see it, it doesn't have the colors which are vital to its language. We should also mention the importance of, of Stan Brackage at this time. I mean, Jerry mentioned Jonas being kind of a sp spiritual center or, or a, a grounding in a sense. And Stan was also like this prophet who would come to New York every two years something and show his films over a period of a few days and speak endlessly from the stage. Was he living in, Col he, was, he wasn't living in Colorado at that time, right? Yes, in Rollinsville. And he'd come and show his new work and speak about it. It was extremely important for us that this fellow, this, this uh, prophet in a sense. Yeah. A, a genuine radical, you know, a genuine radical. So Jonas Mikas was the spiritual leader. Gregory was the king. Stan Brackage was the prophet. I mean, I'm just getting this wonderful the sense cosmology. of the time. Yeah, I know. It was War where did Warhol fit into it? Good question. Yeah, this was pre-factory. So, yeah, no, no. The first time we saw a Warhol film was at an open screening at the theater where Jerry was the projectionist at the 41st Street Theater. Jerry could tell you a, a wonderful story. About, um, uh, are you up to it? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> can, can we plug plug our book? 
<laughs> I wrote, as they say in NPR, as I wrote in my book. Yeah, just say <laughs> as I wrote in my book. <laughs> of course, you could cl- plug your book. Yes, plug away. But also, tell them the story about the premiere of. Uh, yeah, in order, it's a trade-off. We'll let you plug your book if you tell us the story. Yeah. <laughs> what story, Nick? The one with the the screening of Academy Leader and um, oh, and, hold me, and hold me while I'm naked. This is a good a good example of. of that's of not. Story. That's not. That doesn't involve Warhol. No, no, I know. Thank God. Just, just. Okay. All right. We're off the subject of Warhol. We're on the subject of a screening. Okay. Okay. Bye. Okay. Good. And this, uh, the story you're about to tell is in your book as well. Is that the is that the connector, the plug? I I, <laughs> I since I didn't know what he was asking me to say, I was just saying no out of sense, you know. Um, I believe it is in the book. I don't remember. I've given a few interviews in the past. Two young gentlemen from Spain who have an organization called Lumiere, um, I, I did a whole book about Jerry and me from when we were about 15 years old to 25, those years. Long interviews that uh, we worked a long time on, the typing emails and so forth. And that book, what is it called, Jerry? I, the Spanish version came out, but the English version. Illuminated Hours in, in Spanish anyway. Yeah. And uh, it's how we sort of influenced one another and helped one another and so forth and so on. But there's a lot of interviews in, in that. Um, <clears throat> to be brief, if I can, about the um, evening uh, that we're talking about. Um, Luxuriate. No. <laughs> um, I was uh, projecting a program that began with a film by Bruce Connor called Academy Leader. And um, <clears throat> it was 20 minutes of Academy Leader, you know, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, et cetera. I put it on and uh, I got it in focus, but I was reading Moby Dick. So I sat down and I was a little bit out of, you know, every once in a while I could peek and see everything was okay. But there was a man in the front row who was getting more and more disturbed by Academy Leader. I could see that looking up and so forth. So I thought, well, he bears bears uh, watching this one. Next time I looked down, he had opened an umbrella and tried to uh, stop the image uh, from reaching the screen. Mm. I said, okay, so he really doesn't like the film. I'm sitting down again, reading the book. Then I start fantasizing. My gosh, what if he comes up here and tries to attack me and and the projector? And I start tussling with him in my mind. And then right next to me, there's somebody and he's, he's at the projector. The man is at the projector and he's grabbing the film and he's going here, here, here. And, he's been, and I'm in the middle of this, imagine I leap to my feet. We start tussling, I'm throwing him around, pushing this way. A fight's breaking out up there. Uh, the projector, I'm shoving the projector, um, getting him down the spiral staircase out, um, having him thrown out of the building come back up, oh no, the projector is projecting on the wall, uh, on the side of the wall, you know, no complaints from the audience. Everyone's just sort of looking over at the wall. So (laughs) 
very, 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 very slowly. So it make it look like it's normal. You know, the projector, it's like it moves back onto the screen. We get this, you know, back onto the screen again. So- um, Just as Bruce Conner intended. The program ended with uh, the premiere of Hold Me While I'm Naked. And um, George uh, told me, George Kuchar, the filmmaker said he had read in a um, underground review of the thing about, um, oh, it was a wonderful program, had so many interesting films, but the palm of the evening has to go to Bruce Conner. We had been uh, led into a mesmerizing concentration on these numbers when suddenly the, the, the image left the screen and went to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Only Bruce Connor could be capable of this kind of <laughs> Oh my God. Expanded cinema. Thomas, yeah. you have to recreate all of this. I know. Well, it's kind of one new. It's sort of like uh, that, what's that, the Maurice, that Lettris film, has the film already started, that Maurice Lemaitre movie where he has all these staged things where like fights break out in the theater, except this is not, except it wasn't staged. You just were attacked in the booth. Uh, a life of cinema and a life of danger yeah no kidding perilous profession huh oh, oh well read my book <laughs> yeah no exactly you'll have um, to find yeah for more there are more stories <laughs> the family leader had a second showing in boston at some kind of storefront a storefront uh a showcase and someone flipped out there when at, their car was parked right in front of the showcase, went out and started to blow their horn. You Man, know, this movie—it doesn't sound that, you know, controversial or <laughs> confrontational, even. But what? What? The Academy leader? Yeah, just set people off. No, well, I'm tr trying. I'm trying to try watching it. No, I'm trying <laughs> to get you a feeling of what things were like then. Yeah, and you mean this? This kind of like the reaction. It was all very real. Yeah. It, 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 it wasn't, a, you know, it hadn't become a, an institutionalized thing called experimental film. Right. I, we're running out of time, but. So is the earth. Yeah. Well, not, you guys seem to be doing okay. And that's, you know, we, <laughs> we just got to end right there. Mic drop. <laughs> but Clint, did you have something to say? Uh, I did, but it's, but it, now it's escaped my, my mind. No, it's okay. After he reminded me of my mortality, the annihilation of the planet. Yeah. Wait, oh, wait, I'm also okay. This this is like off the off the record, like off the you know <laughs> we don't have to include this, but I'm also just curious um, about uh, Andrew Meyer. I mean, because he's someone who I only really know through his films, but he's kind of a you know yeah I don't know he's a very mysterious figure to me, and so I'm just curious if like if you all had any memories of of Andrew Meyer. From this period we've known andrew for a long time gregory liked his work and then i remember uh gregory andy and i uh, walking around the lower east side a lot and, and talking and so forth and then he moved to um eventually moved to uh venice california and um uh, when we moved out here uh, that was our beach house. I mean, uh, we, we we knew him for years, and uh, unfortunately, he died of uh, leukemia. 
uh, around 1980 or around that 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 time. But, um, but through all that time, we 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 knew him very well. But he he worked at that point more in, in the in the outskirts of the uh, Los Angeles uh, um, movie industry, making movies like uh, Night of the Cobra Woman. And I think that's a great one. Yeah, you worked for Corman, and uh, he had to convert. Corman gave him I don't know. He had to convert a, a Japanese. Um, what were those films called? A disaster movie called Tidal Wave. I, I can't tell the story, it's too much. But w one of the stars of his films was a, a Vivian Kurz, who uh, 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 was also Vivian in Bruce Connors' Vivian. And she went to high school with Jerry. Oh, wow. It, that is a small world. I had a crush on Jerry when she was a sophomore and Jerry was a senior. Wow. <laughs> uh. And she went to the uh, Jewish Museum show and, and loved it. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, fantastic. Oh, you're, you're still oh, she reached out to you? Oh, we're, 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 we're very close to Vivian. Oh, there, wow. Like the show that's ongoing right now, she went to that. Yeah. Oh. I also want to uh, mention, uh, Thomas, uh, David Brooks. Oh, yes. No, yeah. I mean, maybe this is not like we can, we can put, this, put this in there. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, could you could you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your memories of David Brooks? Yeah, sure. He was a very close friend, uh, extremely close. I mean, in a really close circle. And uh, I first saw him when I was eighteen, and I went into the city to uh, my first screenings were at the uh, midnight midnight screenings at the Bleecker Street Cinema, and um, uh, he was the manager. He was the daytime, so to speak, manager. And there was one night where he kept the theater open at midnight, he opened it up again at midnight. And that's where Brackage showed, uh, the first time he showed um, Prelude, Dogstar Man in New York, and The Dead, and many other premieres happened in David's, he was 18. His, and you know, at the time he also, uh, produced the catalog for the filmmakers cooperative and so forth. But I think his films, uh, Night, Spring, Day Star and Winter are really capture that time, that era. Um, his passion for music comes across like nothing else. Uh, so uh, I just recommend that, you know, uh, he, he died young in a car crash and um, uh well he's so much a part of that time for me no yeah and i mean he but he's definitely someone else i was thinking about and he's he's actually in the first um program on on friday um and yeah he's he's exactly the kind of person i was thinking about uh when i wanted to present works by filmmakers that you know maybe had been underappreciated or not as well remembered and yeah. uh yeah well, his his presence was amazing. He was so energetic and so so passionate, energetic, and you know all the things he did. He started so many things along with Jonas. Jonas turned to him as an eighteen year old to start so many so many things that are uh, still here today. Well, I think that's a good kind of loop back to the opening opening night of the program. I think that's a good point for us to wrap up this uh, really fascinating 
um, conversation with Nathaniel Dorsky and Jerome Heiler and Thomas Beard. Thank all, th- thank you all three of you for joining us. Yes, this has been wonderful. And um, buy the book. <laughs> we'll we'll put a link in the description uh, on the website. So maybe that can be in the pre-recorded intro. It can be like they have the new book. What's only available in Spanish now, right? So. Lucky if it's out in English by the end of this year, right? I mean, it's it's pretty much, uh, I think it's pretty much edited. And uh, yes, it's, it's a Spanish version was out or, uh, in January, but uh, sometime later this year. So right, right. We will include all of that. And Uh, Also a link to the amazing series put together by Thomas where you can see uh, Nathaniel's Ingrid, correct? Yes. And films by so many of the filmmakers they've told us wonderful anecdotes about today. So Nice meeting you all. Same. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.